0: I would call your attention to one thing before we get started. This little card, there on the back there, and there's some in the children's area. February 17th through the 20th, which is this coming weekend, uh, Wise Heart Counseling Conference. Tim St. John is coming to uh, Anniston Bible Church from Lighthouse Community Church out in California. He's got a, 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 a deep passion for counseling ministry within the church. You'll be blessed. And on the reverse side, you'll notice that Friday night they're having a couple's dinner at Anniston Bible Church. And we had to register for that. So if you want to go, you and your wife, it would be a great night out, good training. Uh, There's a book included. It's $20 to go. And there will be a meal provided. And so I know that you'll want to be a part of that. You can go to Anniston Bible Church's website. Just Google Anniston Bible Church, Anniston, Alabama. And it will come up. And from there, you'll be able to uh, get registered for that conference. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1 and we want to look today again at the beginning of this letter. <clears throat> last week we opened our sermon series looking at verses 1 through 7. Today we want to move on and go to Romans 1, 7b through 15. Let me read this passage for us beginning at the beginning of the passage even though we did that last week to Keep a harmony between all of this. Let's read this together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This morning I want to preach a sermon entitled, Gospel Longing. Last week was Gospel Identity, this week is Gospel Longing, next week Gospel Power, the next week Gospel Need. So we got a whole uh, set of sermons here on the gospel. And that shouldn't surprise you when we're talking about Romans because I would say two words that kind of capture both sides of this letter, this great letter which Paul wrote is Gospel And mission, just if we want to choose two words, gospel and mission. So what do I mean by that? In Romans chapter 1 through Romans 3.20, we get Paul describing to us uh, after his introduction and his prayer paragraph, he then begins to introduce us to the need that we have for the gospel. The end of chapter 1, he consigns all the Gentile world to idolatry and rejection of God. And then in chapter 2, he says, even the good Heathens are still heathens, and you Jews don't escape either because the law convicts you and condemns you. We're all sinners. That's chapter 3. Everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. And then he launches in verse 24 through 425, the teaching of justification. How can we be made right before God? Paul answers that question eloquently by Picking out and and really detailing for us what it means to be saved by faith alone. Justified. Given right standing by faith alone. Chapter 5 through 7 is a section that begins to tie justification and our standing before God. And our understanding of how that is done in God's sovereignty under the headship of Adam and Christ. And then into chapter 6 which directly fills into our sanctification. You've been justified, but now you are also sanctified and you're practically being sanctified every day as you go through this life. If you know anything about chapter 6 and 7, especially it really uh, presses this idea of the things I don't want to do. I find myself doing the things that I want to do, I don't do. Who will rescue this man, this wretched man? Praise be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how he ends in chapter 4. And then, five, and, and then uh, he picks that up. In five, and then he continues on through seven, where he explains that again. And then chapter eight kind of stands alone, it stands alone because it's a chapter on glorification on the fact that God will not only save you or has saved you, is saving you, but he will save you. Chapters nine through 11 describe the plan of God for salvation for all people, and he's answering a very important question here very important that's being asked by the Jewish Christians in the church at Rome. Remember I said last week the Jewish congregation was displaced in the mid-40s by Claudius the emperor, thrown out of the city, and the Gentiles took over the majority of the church. So when the Jews returned, now they're the minority. Now this great apostle to the Gentiles is writing a letter. And the last thing he wants the Jews to think in the congregation is that he, and more importantly, God, has forgotten them. And so he goes into chapter 9 explaining how God chose us in Christ. And he explains that election in chapter 10, how it plays itself out in salvation. Chapter 11, how it ends with the unity of God's people grafted into Jesus Christ. And then 12 through 14, launching the practical, ethical outworkings of the gospel. And chapter 15 and 16 return us to the theme. And that theme is this gospel means we're on mission. We are on mission in this world. And I'm on mission, and you need to be on mission with me. And so this is a kind of an outlay of where we're headed in the book of Romans. And I tell you that because I really want us to stay together in our, in our journey. It's going to be a while, so we'll need reminders often. But today, I want to start out by just talking with you for a moment about an example of exactly what this sermon is going to come down to. And that is that in 2014, uh, uh, Admiral, Admiral McRaven made a great commencement speech at the University of Texas, and that, that speech has become famous, hasn't it? I mean, there's clips all over the internet. People quote it a lot, but I'll take a moment here to set this up by talking to you about this. He, t- he, in the speech, says many things, but towards the end, he begins to describe what it is to be a young SEAL, a young Navy SEAL. He had a burning passion and desire to serve his country, and he did it through the Navy SEALs. And um, so he's describing the training, and you know their training is uh, is is uh, world renowned. And so in this description, he talks about the ninth week of training in buds, which is known as Hell Week. And we've all heard the legendary stories of the training and how difficult it is in that moment. Well, he talks about the two mile swim they have to take and how that they swim out, and get under the keel of the ship, and. That the darkest moment of the darkest part of the journey, they got to lay a charge there. And you can't see your hand in front of your face. And he's talking about the fear that uh, claustrophobia strikes. And you just, the world's closed down on you. And you want to panic, but you have to control yourself. And then he goes into talking about this uh, hell week experience that they all go through. And he says, you know, here's the deal. We had to go to the mud flats, the Tijuana Slough is what it's known. Between San Diego and Mexico, there's these mud flats where all the water drains in, and it's murky, muddy water. And the mud there is, is like quicksand almost. I mean, anything that's standing in it or putting pressure against it, the person begins to sink. And so his uh, whole platoon, they had made some mistake, grievous error, you know, they needed to be punished. And so they lay them down in the mud. And uh, the sun is starting to set, and they've got eight hours left in this uh, experience. And they're laying in the mud, and they begin to sink. And to the point that really visible is just their heads. They've sunk down into the mud so far. And the whole time, the drill sergeants, the instructors are all saying, five people, we just need five people to quit. If five people quit, everybody can get up. Everybody can leave the slough. And it's raining, and it's cold, and the wind is blowing. He says in his speech that you could literally hear people chattering. You could hear people crying out from pain, physical pain, of being in this cold slough, laying flat of your back, head barely above. And he said in the midst of all of that suffering and all of the encouragement to quit, one voice raised up above all else, and began to sing. And that one voice became two voices, became the whole platoon. And the instructors were trying to make them stop. They were threatening more punishment for their singing, but they just kept singing together. And he said, when we were singing, hope sprang up in our hearts, and the night wasn't as cold and the mud felt warmer, and the daylight seemed to be right before us because of the hope, the hope, the singular hope of doing this together. You see, when people have passion that unites them, they inspire one another with great hope. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is describing for us in verses 8 through 15. Paul is driven by a singular passion to preach the gospel of God to all the Gentiles and by his passion for this singular desire he is willing others to sing with him and to share in this passion with him and that's what we see in these verses we start out in chapter uh, 1 verse 7b where it says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ this is Paul's greeting through most of his epistolary letters he's written 13 letters for us and most of the letters except the pastoral letters all say the same thing, grace and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is the point of grace and peace to you? Well, because in these two things we find a capsule, an encapsulated form of the gospel. Grace. How is it that you become a Christian? Grace. Unmerited favor with God. God of his own freedom gives you salvation. As a gift. And so in his greeting, he's reminding them, you're here because of grace. You don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be here. We don't don't have any claim to have rights over our relationship with God. But God in his goodness has graced us, given us a gift in his son and peace. What is the result of salvation? Peace with God. The Hebrew mind focused on peace, shalom. Now this is not the absence of pain and struggle. This is not the absence of of any tough things in life. If you read the letters, you know that wouldn't be true. So what is peace according to the Bible? This is is the way I would like for us to think about it. When he says grace and peace, he's saying your salvation started with the gift of God, and it has resulted in peace with God. In other words, it is a standing. It is a standing before God. Let that sink in. Like All the struggle you're going through, all the persecution you face, Paul, what is it that keeps you going? I have peace. I'm not at war with God any longer. I have peace, peace that passes all understanding, the result. So we have the beginning grace of your life with Christ, and we have the result of your life with Christ, peace with God. Well, so so my spouse of 60 years died last week, and you're telling me I'm supposed to be at peace? You are at peace if you have Christ. I just lost my job. I don't know how I'm going to feed my children. And you're talking about peace? Because of God's grace through Jesus Christ to you, you have settled conditions standing before God. You're at peace. This is where we find contentment. This is where we find energy towards the, the mission. This is it. We are at peace with God. The greatest account has been settled. That's my debt owed to God. He paid it all for me. And now I am free. Free. And our standing before God is settled forever. I have peace with God. So that's Paul's way of saying capturing the whole Christian life in two words. Grace, peace. The bookends of the faith, we might say. Grace and peace. And this is a blessing that he's wishing over the church. But then he details that grace and peace. So we look in verse 8 and we see that there's a gratitude which he shares for the Roman believers. Now, he doesn't know this church firsthand. He's never met them but look what he says. First, in first priority, in other words, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So, Paul, right here at the beginning of this letter, after introducing himself and wishing over them a blessing of grace and peace, launches out to say, The first priority that I have is to tell you that I'm thankful for your faith in Jesus Christ because it's being proclaimed throughout all the world. What kind of faith must this church have possessed? Think if you got a letter from the greatest Christian leader of our day even. Just forget Paul for a minute. Just the greatest Christian leader in your worldview. I don't know who it might be. For some of y'all, it's John MacArthur, the Pope of Protestantism. For others, it's John Piper. For others, it's another, right? Imagine if they wrote a letter to us here at Grace Fellowship and said, Grace Fellowship, I want you to know I thank God for you. For your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul has never met them face to face. But he met them because of their faith. He's singing praises over them. He wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to feel this this gratitude, this deep gratitude he has for them as believers. Notice his thanksgiving is toward God on their behalf. He's not thanking them. He's thanking God for them. That's a much better thank, thankful gratitude there. He's not saying, hey, in other words, he's not saying, you've done some specific thing and I want to thank you for it. He's saying, in general, I'm saying to God, thank you for your faith. Thank, I'm thanking God for you and your faith, which is proclaimed in all the world. So what, what does this mean? Well, Remember last week I laid this out. They were sent out from the city because they were being blamed for all the turmoil among the Jews. And Claudius wanted them out of the city. This controversy over Christ is causing great stir and potential revolt. And so they sent the the Jewish Christians out. And what happened? Well, when they went out, they went to places like Corinth and Ephesus and probably islands off the coast of, of Greece. And they were beginning to be seen as faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And the word was spreading throughout the church. This is how Paul met Priscilla and Aquila, remember. And he, he met them there in Corinth. And so they're, they're, they're known. What does it mean to be known for your faith? If someone got an opportunity to define you, the question you and I need to ask ourselves is, would they define us by our faith? Would they define us for our faith? Paul is grateful to God for these Christians. Second, thirdly, in this passage, we see in verses 9-10 through a prayerfulness for the Roman believers. This gratitude leads to prayerfulness. He doesn't just say some nice word and move on, but look what he says. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son... That without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So notice he piles up these descriptors and you, 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 you see it. For God as my witness, I tell you I serve you in my deepest man, my deepest inner being. I'm serving you and this is what I want you to know. I do it always with all of my prayers. It's an unceasing, he says, passion that he has for them. A passion driven by the gratitude towards God for what God has done in their lives and in his life. He feels united to them. He feels united to them. And he's never met them. I just keep bringing that up. I mean, it's not like there's some friendship here. There's a brotherhood much deeper than friendship. Have you ever felt that feeling? Um, The unity you have with brothers and sisters that you don't even know, you just meet them. You have a very small conversation with them, and you feel drawn to them because of the unity that you have in Christ. You know, last week at uh, Home Group, I think it was last week, pretty sure it was, no, maybe in the week before, I don't know, Mike, it was one of those weeks, Mike has just returned from Africa and had a great uh, opportunity to go over there and to do some climbing and hiking of just a small little hill. And Mount Kilimanjaro. But anyway, he'll show you the pictures. <laughs> and he told us this great story. that uh, It was two weeks ago because it was on Unity Sunday. That is so much like this. He said the last uh, day they were there, they were packing up. He, he and his friends are in their tent and their guides are in their own tent and you know they're loud and they're boisterous and they're speaking their language they don't speak english and 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 nobody in the group that's hiking speaks their language and so but they've just noticed all week how happy they are how joyful they are how they're serving them and loving them and even the most disgusting tasks they're willing to do it and they're excited to do it and, it, and it's just it was already kind of a witness and then he he found the source of that as they were packing they heard the voices of these men in the other tent singing hymns that They knew the tune to those hymns, but they couldn't understand a word they were saying. And he said it just ignited in our tent, singing hymns, singing the hymns with them. This is the kind of unceasing passion Paul had for these Romans. You see what I'm saying? Like, I don't know you by faith, and I don't, you don't know me by faith, but your faith has been proclaimed to us, And now I long to come see you so I can see what God has done in you because we're joined together as brothers and sisters. A tighter bond than blood brotherhood. We'll never understand it, I don't think, maybe short of heaven, fully understand. But we long to understand it more, don't we? I mean, it it sounds offensive, I know, to some. But Grace Fellowship is a family, is my family. You are my family. Because, not because we're related in blood, but because the blood of Christ has covered and removed all of our sins. And we share faith together. It is right for Christians to love their church family like that. Gratitude boiled over into unceasing prayerfulness for people he had never seen but he felt bonded to Because of their joint faith in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing we're getting to peek into here. Let's take another step. What does this lead to? Plans for the Roman believers. That's what he says in verses 11 through 13. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul is a very straightforward guy. He's telling them right up front, I have a desire to reap a harvest among you. Now, we're going to come back to that. That's, that's key to this passage, understanding it, okay, I think rightly. But let's back up to that verse 11. What does he say? I, I'm longing... Now you see, I'm so creative with titles, aren't I? I long to see you. Why? That I might give you a spiritual gift. Now this is not the spiritual gifts listed for us in later in Romans or 1 Corinthians 12. This spiritual gift, he says, is the faith that they share. And the encouragement that he wishes that both have together in the faith. So here's what he does. He says something for the first time in this letter that sounds authoritative. For I long to come to you that I might impart to you a spiritual gift. And so you can imagine, I mean, they might be like, oh, the the super apostle's coming to see us. He's going to give us something. And then he says, no, listen, I'm going to explain it. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. What is the gift that he wants to give them, encouragement in the faith. He wants to show them the genuineness of his faith, and he wants to see the genuineness in their faith. And when those two things happen in the presence of one another, encouragement happens. Like those soldiers laying in the mud pits in Tijuana, when they heard the voice of their colleague singing forth, they began to sing. And they were mutually encouraged by one another. You can't make it in this Christian walk, Paul would say, as some long-ranger Christian. It is a wilderness out there. It It is a battleground out there, worse than a wilderness. And your enemies are taunting you to quit the faith. If they're not, you might not have faith. The doubts that so easily come into our hearts and our minds... The questions about, am I really a Christian or not a Christian? The, the failure in sin in this moment, which leads directly to you and your spirit saying, I'm a phony and I quit. The voices of those you love the most telling you you're a radical, you need to stop being so radical and do something else with your life. The friend and neighbor that's next to you that you've labored with and you've prayed for and you've given of yourself and your home to them and then they look you in the eyes and they say, I never want to talk to you again. Those discouragements are real. And Paul says, I want to come to you that I might impart to you a gift of encouragement based on our faith together. And I don't just want to have you be encouraged. I need to be encouraged. It should be an encouragement to the Grace Fellowship that the Apostle Paul needed to be encouraged. The need for encouragement is real, folks. This week as I'm studying this part of the passage, in my mind, it just rises up. The many times that you have encouraged me and did not. Didn't think it was that big a deal. You wrote a card. You called. You text. You emailed. And then I hear that you're doing it to one another. And I think about the way that that has bonded us together. That's exactly what Paul's saying. I want to come to you. I long to do it. Because I want to give you this gift that I have and that you have this faith that we have is a gift that we share and it will encourage our souls to be on the mission I'm on the mission so what's his plan to come to them so he might encourage them why so that they can be be a harvest that's reaped he wants to reap a harvest now here Paul's talking about not just conversion that's part of it i mean he's talking to christians right Right? He's not writing this letter about the lost citizens of Rome. He's writing this letter to the Christians. So notice when he says, I want to reap a harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. It's not simply, not simply conversion, though that is here. But it is all the Christian life that he seeks to reap from them. He seeks to reap from them both conversion through justification by faith alone and sanctification, their growth in the faith, and ultimately glorification, which they receive at the, at the Lord's second coming. He seeks to reap that harvest. In other words, in Paul's mind, the harvest didn't finish when somebody prays a prayer. No, he, that's, that's, a good, that's good. I think Paul would be so ecstatic about someone getting on their knees before the Lord and asking God to save them. But I don't think he would call that fruit. Not yet. I think then he would watch their life and disciple them. You see, we have an unnatural bend to separate and uncouple what the Bible has coupled together. We want to talk about conversion, and we want to brag about conversion, and we want to press for decisionism unhooked from discipleship. What the Apostle Paul wants to do is reap a harvest of their lives among them and the Gentiles. My mission, in other words, is not to get someone to pray a prayer. My mission is to help them see the glory, matchless glory, of Jesus Christ, understand the gospel of God so that their whole life bears fruit as a harvest. Part of that harvest is their obedience, or we might say another way to say that harvest is the obedience of faith. Now, that's the thing that he has throughout this letter. He already brought it up one time. Notice back up in the passage. He, has, he, he, in verse 5, says that his apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith. In chapter 15, he's going to say it again, the obedience of the faith of the Gentiles. He's after the obedience of the faith, including all of their life, being ordered by their king. So, Paul's a servant of God through Jesus Christ, and he sees these fellow saints as servants of God. And what do we need to do? We need to encourage one another together, mutually, which will lead to a great harvest at your church location and around the world to the rest of the Gentiles, this harvest of the obedience of the faith. That's what I long for. I'm longing to come to you that this might happen among us and with us and to us together. And finally, in this passage, we see All of this rises up out of a desire, a desire which he has for the Roman believers. It's mentioned there as long I long for I long, but look down and you see it clearly in verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager, you see it again right there, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He, he, this is speaking clearly of his desire. The, the words here translated, the obligation and eagerness. They speak to a longing, a depth of a longing inside of a person. Paul felt an obligation to what? To preach the gospel of God to all the Gentiles. The, notice he, he does the Greek and the barbarian, the wise and the fool. Let me explain that for you. I think you probably know everyone in the Roman world was either a Greek Not by native, like, ethnic. But they were Greek because they spoke Greek. They were educated in Greek philosophy. They were the higher class. Or they were barbarians. People who don't speak Greek. And people who are not educated and who are mainly the servant class. We might say that in their economy they had the rich and the poor. The haves and the have-nots. The educated and the completely uneducated. Paul says, I want to preach the gospel to the educated and the uneducated, to the rich and to the poor, to the Greek and to the barbarian, to the wise and to the foolish. This is a way for him to say, my mission is not to reach some really strategic people, the really powerful people. I want to prefer them over all the others. Paul showed no partiality in his ministry. If you were a beggar on the street, Or if you were sitting in Caesar's palace, you need the gospel. And the Apostle Paul had a longing, an eager longing, an eager obligation to complete the task of getting the gospel to everyone. Grace Fellowship, this better be our mission. The church should not struggle under the disillusioning reality of separation between classes the rich or the poor, the educated or the uneducated. We don't we don't need to recognize those labels here. It Paul says, regardless of who you are, you have a common need. Jesus Christ. Well, who are you going to make a strategy to reach, Paul? All of them. Well, yeah, but you've got to focus in on somebody. The Greeks and the barbarians. Well, yeah, I mean, but you've got to think about, you know, who? The wise and the fool. It's the same thing he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the exact same thing. God shows no partiality. Paul showed no partiality. We should show no partiality We should show no rank and no preference over one group or another. But we should have unity, mutual encouragement of the faith as one family on a mission for God in this world. What is that mission? To spread the fame of the name of the Lord to the ends of the earth. To get the gospel of God to everyone. That was what he was eager to do. And that's what he's going to do. And you know, in my life, I've had the privilege of seeing this happen to me. In um, 2000, when I moved to Anniston, shortly after moving to Anniston, you know, I uh, found out about this guy named Aaron Acker. And so I was crazy enough to call him, and he was crazy enough to not know, to not answer. And he invited me to lunch, or I invited myself. We'll, We'll just leave that to history. I wanted someone to disciple me, and so I I went to him, and that day, there was another man in the the office with him when I got there, and um, he introduced us for the first time, and his name was Ron Limbaugh, and Ron and I became more than friends. We became fellow laborers in the harvest field because I have a desire and Ryan has a desire, like Paul did, to get the gospel to the world. And without knowing each other very well, we already felt bonded together. And 20, over 21 years now, whether Ryan was in Anniston when he was working for FCA at that time in Anniston, then he went to Master Seminary in California, and then he came back to Anniston Bible Church, and then we sent him out to plant a church in Redeemer, and now he's a member of this church by God's grace, and he's a gift to us, and he's back with FCA full time. And this week, I just overwhelmingly felt the goodness of God in that relationship. Why? Because I have encouraged him in his race. And he has encouraged me because we share a common faith. And we are on mission together. And what that has meant is hundreds of saved souls. Hundreds. It's not a, what that's meant is that this church has been mobilized. I mean, when I look out over this church, and I don't want to over uh, say this. I think this is true, though. More than half of the support that FCA Chihaw Valley gets, around half or more, comes from this body of believers. Through our budget and through you as individuals. A meeting... A a providential meeting in an office in 2000 has now led to hundreds of salvations. And the gospel being preached on the campuses of almost every school in this county. And many of you joining that mission and going along to come to you. That I might impart a gift to you. And that gift is the encouragement of our faith. Why? So we can feel good about each other? No. So that we might reap a harvest. So we might reap a harvest among the Gentiles together. I thought about my relationships, and I mean, there's so many I could go through. From Ryan to meeting this young, excited guy named Corey Hughes a few years ago when he was at First Oxford and I had heard of him, and so I meet him face to face and immediately want to get to know him more. And we start building a relationship, and then God is so kind to bring him here and to place him among us to labor together. And David Ryan, the same way, and Adam Swan for a time. And I think about my relationships, and I kid you not, I don't have a lot of relationships outside of the bond that I have with the people of faith in my life. I don't have a lot of relationships. And I look out at this congregation every Sunday. And I'm energized to preach the truth to you because you are an encouragement to me. And I just pray that I'm an encouragement to you. And that mutual encouragement leads to not a bunch of inward focused, you know, loving each other, lovey-dovey, but all of us turning our face towards the lost world and saying we want to preach the gospel till he comes again. Till the gospel of God is on every shore. We're not going to quit. We're not going to relent. We're going to... Sing from the mudflats of the spiritual war. And that voice raised high will lift the hopes of all around us. And we will not quit. We will not ring the bell, Grace Fellowship. We will, by his grace, finish the task he's given us. Isn't that your desire? I pray it is. And if you're visiting us and that's the kind of desire you want to be a part of, then I invite you to come be a part of it. We want you here. And if you're a lost person, you say, this is so foreign to me. I can't imagine people talking like this. Come hear the gospel week after week. And let us all be encouraged on to reap a harvest through the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, as we close this time in your word, we are reminded of your goodness towards us in your son, Jesus Christ. And we think about the fruitful relationships that we share. God, the mutual edification that takes place because of you. Because of your spirit, the family that many of us have in the faith that is deeper and thicker than blood, it's an eternal bond that we share. Father, we ask now that you would, in your your goodness towards us, carry this bond further, cause us to grow in grace. And to live out of the peace that you have placed in our hearts through your Son. Father, may we be an encouragement to all. May the gospel go forward. May your work be done. Here as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.